morning, everybody. I'm Mary Lou, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Grateful to be here today. Hi, Mary Lou. Hi, I'm Nancy. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. This morning, I'm starting with the doctor's opinion. But before I start with this, I'd like to tell you my doctor's opinion. I was about six, and my doctor's opinion was this. Mrs. Fernandez, your daughter's very healthy. She just needs to lose weight. And that stuck with me my entire life. So when we look at this doctor's opinion, and we have somebody who is the head of a hospital, he has seen these men and women, particularly men, I guess, come in and out of this hospital over and over and over again. And many of them, he has come to say that they're hopeless. I was that hopeless person. I would have been in this hospital over and over and over again. I had 25 years of career dieting, I'll call it. And um, I was very, very successful as a career dieter. I always lost weight. I did what I was told to do. However, I was never able to sustain anything remotely like weight loss. I also um, was uh, a drug addict simply because I felt as though this was a way to lose weight. And for roughly 12 years, I was addicted to amphetamines and other drugs that were related to them. So there was uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, whatever it took so that I wouldn't eat. And that was how I lived my life. So this doctor has seen people very much like me. They may not have been using the same thing, but it's the same idea, right? And um, he said they were hopeless. Well, what does that mean to be hopeless? It means to me that it's a death sentence. There's no hope. There's nothing that I can do for you. I've tried everything there is. Unless you stop doing this, you're gonna die. Or you're gonna be so sick and so miserable that you wish you could die. And what's interesting is that there was this guy, right? So um, he was a repeat offender. And on one of the times that he came back, somebody gave him an idea that there's something else that you could do besides coming to this hospital that might help you recover from this terrible disease that you have. And um, because he had been there several times and he had a lifetime, an adult lifetime of alcoholism, he jumped on this idea. And he also decided, because he was told that, if you do this and you tell other people that you can be recovered. So Dr. Silkworth has verifiable account of what he saw these people do. And he saw a man go from hopeless to hopeful. He saw somebody that had hope. And that's my story. I came to Overeaters Anonymous after dieting for 25 years. 
And when I walked into the room, I didn't know anybody. Um, it was a phone call that I had made. I had heard of OA some many years ago. And I walked into that room and people like you all of a sudden wanted to help people like me. And I was like, okay, I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know how I would react, but I knew that this was different. This was not somebody telling me, here's what you eat and this is what you do. This was somebody who apparently seemed to care about what my outcome was gonna be. So, <clears throat> never being able to sustain anything like, um, I don't know, I guess to say that I would be on a diet for the rest of my life, you know, I thought that that was like incomprehensible. I was never gonna do that. Um, so we know that um, the doctor had made a lot of observations, let's call it. And one of his observations was that, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, I have all these resources, but I can't help these people. And why, why can't I help them? And yet, this man who came the other day says, I have a possible solution, and I'm gonna try and share the solution with these other people. Um, the doctor himself wanted to give us an idea of what it was that he observed. So he saw that these people, people like us, had a two-fold illness. He saw that there was an obsession of their mind to take the first drink or the first bite, as we might say, but also he saw that once they did it, something physically happened to them. They were not normal people. And he termed this a phenomenon of craving. So how to look up this phenomenon? What does that actually mean? So it tells me that it is an observable fact or an event, a rare or significant event, and also exceptional or unusual or abnormal person, place, or occurrence. So right away he's saying to us that even though this is an observable fact, there's not a lot of people who have this. And when you look at the amount of people in the world today, whatever them, that billion number is, the percentage of people who are whether they're alcoholic, food addicts, or whatever, is relatively small. So it says that this phenomenon is exceptional or unusual. So for many of us, probably all of us, we thought that we could live a life like other people. Why was it that when I ate something that, to coin the word alcoholic food, when I couldn't stop eating that food, why was that? And why couldn't I just diet? Well, the doctor was very clear when he told us that this is not possible for us. Um, he says that, you know, um, if the 
If the doctor is honest with himself, he sometimes feels his own inadequacy. He was aware that he was not able to bring about the change in these people that was needed. And that this phenomenon, once it was started, could not be stopped. And he also wanted to say that these people were not drinking or eating because they were um, people with some sort of disorder as far as like a mental disorder or um, that just that they had a moral issue. That was not the problem. Once they put that particular food in their mouth, they were eating, well, we'll say eating for us, to overcome a craving, a craving beyond their mental control. So when the doctor started to look at this and he realized that this is twofold, that it is a mental and physical illness that we have. A lot of us realize that, uh, we realize that today, but we didn't know that. We didn't know why our lives were in such a state where we saw the person next to us eating something that we thought we could eat, but it turned out that we couldn't. We could not have those foods. Um, because once we did, we couldn't stop, right? However, what the doctor also had to say was, once we could eliminate these particular foods in our life, and that there was no damage to us, now, there sometimes there is, I mean, some of us may have um, diabetes or other issues related to our food addiction. But once we were able to get past that point, there's a plan that was outlined in this book. And what we started to see was that if we were able to follow this particular plan, that there was hope for us, there was a possible recovery for us. He also said that there was no way that they were able to do this of their own human will. The doctor was a very humble man. It was amazing, you know, when you think of doctors, and I, I personally, you know, have some issues with them. Um, because I've been, you know, I've been told my entire life one thing or another that I maybe didn't agree with, um, but this man was very humble, and he was willing to say, I don't have an answer for you. And what we have found out is that we don't have an answer as to why, in the sense that, you know, why are we doing this? But we do have an answer as to what can be done about it. And um, if, we, if we're able to accept this plan that's outlined in this book, that we can recover. Um, there's just so many things in my life when I start to think about my own addiction and the devastation that it's brought on me um, it's really, you know, sometimes I get sad about it, but then when I look at what was given to me when I walked into the room of Overeaters Anonymous 27 years ago, you know, 
and I saw that there were people who had something that I wanted. I didn't know how to get it, but they were willing to help me. They were willing to say to me that if you do this, you have the, you have the potential to recover. And that was what I wanted. To be honest with you, it's taken me a very, very long time though. I have had very long periods of abstinence, but also very long periods where I was not abstinent, where I, you know, um, I couldn't do it. Um, as we go forward with this, we'll talk about some of the other things as to why, um, but really, if you follow the directions as they've laid out in this book, you can recover. So I think that my time is up right now and I'm gonna turn this over to Nancy. Okay, hi, I'm Nancy. I'm a recover compulsive ever eater. Yeah. No, that was great. It was the, like, the perfect like analogy, like explaining the doctor's opinion. And what I'm gonna go over is Bill's story. And I'll be honest with you, these were the two chapters that I always skipped, but I was still sick, right? And today for me, especially Bill's story, I mean, knowing what's wrong with me and then what, well, Bill's story, you know, it gives me that, uh, it's a story of hope and a sense of identification because I needed to identify with somebody, you know, when I read it, I identify it to my life. Like, he's a man, I'm a woman. 1930s, I was born in the 60s. It, you know, I take all that out of the equation. And, you know, I look, like, pay, the pages one through eight, you know, when I relate myself to Bill, like, um, did I think, feel, and do the things with food that he did with alcohol? You know, that's how I'm going to relate myself to him, you know, and then paint the pages 9 through 16 is where the steps begin and God comes in and for me it, it just I'm going to skip skip around but it different pages but the one thing on page 3 where it says drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life I'm just going to relate it to my own life that as a kid I as a kid, I started really liking food. And it like it took on a whole new meaning. I don't know, you know, I can remember back. And the thing for me was I could eat what I wanted and not gain weight. So nothing showed on me. So then I go into grammar school and I'm playing sports. I'm like active, but it's, you know, it's progressing. And the more, I'm eating more, but I'm like, oh, I'm playing sports. Like, I, I knew from a young age, like, there was some kind of control and obsession with the food. So I remember me and a girlfriend, and I just saw her the other night. This is just crazy how this all works. Like, Michael was saying 17 years, and it was 17 years ago that I came in here, into OA. And we used to go every day after school, and we would eat a big bag of jacks I mean big we would go to this deli and a big soda and every day I would be in school and I would be like I can't wait to go get that I can't wait so like I said I I played sports and all that so it 
it didn't show on me. But I knew something was wrong, and then I, you know, liked to eat by myself and all that. So it, it just was progressing. Get to high school, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going like through his, you know, through Bill's life as my own. And I get to high school, and that was a whole new ball game. You know, I'm looking at other girls and comparing myself to them, and. Um, I just constantly began to be on a diet. It just was what I did. The diet started, and the one thing that I remember, there are certain things that I've, I've shared this, I always wanted to be a cheerleader and a basketball player for high school. I did it in my township. So they, they kind of know when you're going from you know, the township to high school, who's going to try out and all that stuff. So I remember seeing the girls that were going to try out, and I'm like, I'm not going to measure up. I'm not going to measure up. And the constant, you know, they're thinner, they're this. And, and it, it got, it plagued on me so bad that I faked an injury so I wouldn't have to try out because I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to fail. Now, I need to explain, you know, there was a guy at the end of my senior year, because I took diet pills also through the whole high school, the guy said, wrote in my book, to the girl who was always on a diet, I just need to explain this, I was 115 pounds. Okay, that's, it didn't progress. Like, I mean, it's progressing, but it didn't show. So I could, it didn't show, but I, it was, you know, so, my work career, so now I go into my work career and I didn't know what I want to do with my life, so I went into the restaurant business. What better field for me, because I have plenty of addictions. And, you know, like, gradually things got worse. So for me, this is where my weight up, now it was up and down. Diet pills in there. Lou talked about, I did a lot of drugs. Now I'm controlling it. And plus I have other addictions, so it's, you know. So we get to page five, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And that's where I was. It was a necessity and I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop and <clears throat> I thought to myself at this time, because there was just like a lot of years like in that restaurant business, but I started stealing food. Like all the things, like I was entitled to steal that food so I could go home because what also began is I began to eat in the middle of the night and that became a thing that happened every night. And I used to wake up and go, how did this happen again? And waking up and swearing, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I would try my pants on, and if they were tight, I was mad at the world. If they were okay, like they fit, I'm good. I, I did good. I, I'm okay. I can still. So it's just all that, you know, the progression of. And on page six, let's just, I'll get right to it. The remorse, horror, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse. You know, that doesn't, but it's, 
further down, should I kill myself? No, not now. No, not now, because I felt that way inside, but um, not at that not at that time. But so then I could tell my whole life story, but I got pregnant. And then it was like, I felt, no, I'll tell you what happened. I came into OA, it was 28 years ago, because I saw my aunt and she lost weight. And I asked her what she did. And she said, I want to, I go to OA. I'm like, I'm going with you. I go to OA, I'm no program, no God. I'm not looking at books, anything. I want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. I lost the weight. I got this and left. Mm-hmm. A little while later, you know, then again, I have arrived. <laughs> Hello, right? So what happened then was I got pregnant. And that was like, no, I was no, I wanted no children. I was not the girl that was having kids, you know. But I got pregnant, and now it was, for me, and nothing against where I was, the most unhappy time of my life. Because now I'm white knuckling it. I'm going to the gym every day, and in about six months of my pregnancy, all bets off, and I gained about 60 pounds in the last three months. And, um, you know, it, the. The unhappiness just just took over the unhappiness. So now I'm going. To, I'm planning a wedding. This is all you know. I'm just giving you a little. I'm planning a wedding now. And the mental torture of thinking if I get fitted for a dress, is that going to fit me in a year from now? Like I could. It it overtook my life. That's all I thought about. And I'm like, I, I gotta fix this, I gotta fix this, I gotta fix this. And you know what? So here I am, 215 pounds. And I told you about the girl, 115 pounds. And felt the exact same way inside. Mm-hmm. You know, that loneliness. So I'm gonna get right to where, you know, on page eight. No words can tell of the loneliness loneliness and despair I found in the bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I have been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And the dark, dark place that where, where I was, um, laying on my living room floor, crying, thinking, is this all there is to my life? Because the unhappiness, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do, and it's just like with Bill, when Abby calls Bill. It's crazy how you <coughs> related to your life. I made a phone call to somebody in OA. It was something in a paper, because it was you know, like 17 years ago, and I made a call, and a, a nice woman on the phone told me where our meeting was, and I went to this meeting in Williamstown, and it was my first meeting. I met Lou there, I met a lot of people, and so, you know, it's like I admitted defeat. You know, I admitted that defeat. And, you know, as um, I'm, in, I'm in the rooms and I'm hearing, because here's where, you know, on page 12, you know, about the God thing. And then the, the best thing for me is, why don't you choose your own conception of God? 
and that's that's what changed it for me because I had that deflation and then all of a sudden when they said that your own conception and I felt I felt so much hope because I was so beaten down and then they when they really started talking about this program and everything so choose my own conception of God and what that has what that has done I started to work the steps and then that I developed that relationship with God and it has it keeps on developing you know over the years and um, you know the biggest thing that I had to I had to put this food down I had to find out those foods I had to work these steps I a God of my understanding and on page 14 I just want to read um, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs particularly was it was it imperative to work with others I mean we were already learning this in these first two chapters we got to work with others and that is what has changed in my life working with others being inconvenienced being but what I get back is I so much more. As he, faith without works was dead, he said. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it was just like that. And I, there's so much in here, you know, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in, in the path that really goes somewhere. I've seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. You know, this book, it tells me like there's so much in life and it has everything in here every situation every in lesson and i it's the joy the joy is rooted in the spiritual principles you know in helping others i you know like what i learned was when i couldn't get this was a sick mind can't heal a sick mind and i needed help and you know ebby calling Bill, me reaching out to somebody in LA and going to a meeting and then meeting people like you. That's where it all changed for me. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Lou. Okay. So we're told in this book that there's a solution. It says right in the very first paragraph, nearly all have recovered, but it doesn't say we're cured. It just says, nearly all have recovered. Goes on to tell us that, you know, in this group of people, I am sure, or pretty sure, and I would have never met you. I would have, our paths probably would have never ever crossed. However, we come together as a group of people with a common illness. And it's amazing to me that that this is even possible. You know, we think of people who maybe have cancer or maybe have um, some other disease 
that is a typical disease and they come together sometimes in small groups. But these people, these people somehow knew that this was something that would work. So all of us, <clears throat> excuse me, all of us who sit here today and know that we wouldn't know one another, um, but what we've learned by coming here is that people like you have helped me and people like me can help another person and we can help people recover. And that's really the amazing solution, you know, that it says here, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution, a way on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So we all suffer. We all know what it's like to suffer. For many of us, I'm sure our stories are very much the same, regardless of how we got here or where we came from. One of the things I think that's so important is that I had to reconcile the fact that this is an illness, that I am not an immoral person, although back in the day I might have been, <laughs> but this is not a moral issue. I have a disease, an illness, and unfortunately, my disease will roll over onto you if I am not keeping it under wraps, so to speak. Um, I will bring havoc to other people, and I have had that in my life, where you know, it tells us it brings misunderstanding and resentment and financial insecurity. Financial insecurity, it's very interesting to me because for me, my compulsion runs in a lot of different directions. I'm not just a compulsive overeater. I am a drug addict. I am a compulsive spender. Um, back in the day, I was a compulsive restaurant person. You know, I mean, I like to eat. There was no doubt about that. And I like to go, I would be at this French restaurant at around Walnut Street, Broad and Walnut, and I'll never forget it. It was so amazing and so wonderful. I didn't have any money. I didn't care. I was going to that French restaurant because it was something that I wanted to, I like different foods. I was not the junk person. I wanted to be where the food was really, really good. I liked to cook. I learned to cook at a really young age. So these are things that, you know, um, were interesting to me. And it also, you know, where it talks about, you know, bringing havoc on other people, it really is true. You know, um, I have been married. This is my third marriage. You know, we go on to look at things where we talk about, you know, our relationships with people. And I didn't know how to have a relationship because I was all about Mary Lou and, and how I was going to get what I wanted. And that was the way I lived my life. I just didn't, I would make you think I cared about you, but the truth was that I really didn't. Um, you know, because this was about me. But when I came here, 
the first meeting that I was at, and I will tell you this is the God's honest truth and I'll never forget it. We were in a circle, that's what we used to do in the beginning of the meeting, saying the serenity prayer. And I felt, I felt like these hands were on my shoulders. And it was the oddest sensation, and I don't think that I've ever had anything like that again. And when I left that meeting, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew something was going to happen because it was different. And you know, today I look back on that and I feel like that was the hand of God on me those 27 years ago in Williamstown. Um, there are people, when I go to that meeting every Monday night, that are still there from those years that I walked in. And I am very grateful to have had something like that happen to me. And they cared about me and they wanted me to recover. Um, the, in some ways, the unfortunate thing is that we weren't using this book 27 years ago. I knew this book existed, but nobody was telling me to read it. And there was one meeting in particular that I used to go to, it was a Wednesday night, it's long since gone. But when I tried to bring this book up, because I had this little discovery, I got the book, it's about three months into program, and I was reading it, and I came across the promises. And I remember reading that and crying my eyes out and thinking to myself, could this really happen to me? I was only three months in program. So I go to the, there were two women that used to run the meeting. And I went there and I said, look, I said, I found, I found this, you know, <laughs> could we read this? No, we don't read out of that book. Hmm. This is true, you know, but it's a long time ago I think we've all come a long way. You know, people who have been around the rooms a long time have seen the evolution of, not that the big book wasn't there, but the evolution in a way of using this as a guide to our recovery. You know, and this to me is what has been so important. Um, I have been in so many step groups over the years that I cannot even begin to tell you. Um, I think the first one that we ever did lasted 14 months. We used the OA workbook. We went every week. You know, we, we were dedicated to what we were doing. We wanted to recover, you know, and that was what we used. And guess what? That worked. If you worked it, you know, but you didn't have all of the facts as they're laid out in this book. You know, um, one of the things that I think is so important as well is that I don't think that anybody ever said to us, you must, not you might want to, <laughs> you must put down the food if this is going to work for you. But nobody was saying that they were saying do the best you can you know and yes we of course we have to do the best that we can but if we're not putting down the food and our brain isn't clear we're not getting it so guess what people i didn't get it <laughs> you know it took me um two years i for some reason or other sugar was very easy for me to put down um so 
I was doing, I thought I was doing great. Look, I'm not eating any sugar. I'm two years in, I'm blah, blah, blah. What I couldn't put down, or what I didn't want to put down, was the flour. For me, that is a, that is a bigger issue than sugar for me. You know, and we all are different. Um, I like the sweet stuff, but you know, give me a loaf of bread and, and I'm happier with some, you know, roasted red peppers and a piece of provolone. You know, that's where my head goes. These are the things that I love to eat, you know. But they tell us here that, you know, we really can recover. And they take us through, you know, what is the difference between the person who um, is just eating a lot because they like to eat and me, the person who can't stop, you know? So I am the person that can't stop. I will lose all control, as it tells me in this book. But I'm telling you, I feel like I never had a chance. I feel like I never had a chance growing up for whatever reason, you know? Because I told you that I was a, I was a perfect dieter. So that says, I have a lot of willpower. I can follow direction. I can do what I need to do to lose weight. But I never had that God power that it talks about in this book. I was always about, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And I did. You know, I can do this. It took me a really, really long time to learn how selfish I was, how dishonest I was, how I didn't care, only about me, you know? And that is why in this program I have relapsed many, many, many times. You know, we go on and there are so many different things in here. I, you know, it's hard to even in 15 minutes uh, touch on all the things that I would like to say. But I love this sentence where it tells me that there is the obsession that somehow, someday, you will beat the game, mm -hmm. but they often suspect that they are down for the count. And after many relapses, I finally started to agree to that. My favorite, one of my favorite paragraphs is on page 24. And you know, anytime you see something in italics, you know it's important in here. And it says, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. So my suffering and humiliation is that I used to be 270 pounds. And I would lose 100, 110 pounds, and then I would gain 60 or 70 pounds back. I never did go back up to 270, but I have been back up to like 230, 235. So something in my brain does not work right. And I, I just wrote in my margin, it says, my memory is not as strong as my obsession. It just is not. There is something so wrong with my brain because it cannot remember. And talk about humiliation. You know, I had a, 
almost family member one time say to me, it was Easter Sunday, I'll never forget it. And I hadn't seen her in a little while. And she said to me, oh my God, did you blow up? And these are the things, these are the things that you never forget. Like I never forgot about the doctor. I never forgot that she said that to me. And these are like a pain in my, like a knife that goes in my heart. She didn't mean to be mean to me, but she had maybe seen me six months ago and I looked like a different person. Because for me, there was never 10 pounds or 15 pounds. It was, you know, you saw me one day, I was maybe 150, and the next day you saw me and I was 220. It's unbelievable that I could put so much food into my body knowing what would happen and not being able to control it. So, it tells me right here on page 25, there's a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which will produce, which the process requires for its successful consummation. And guess what? I didn't like that. I wasn't telling you everything about me. I didn't think you needed to know everything. That's just none of your business. Because if you did, you would never want to talk to me again. And that was the bottom line. That was how I felt. The first time I ever did a fourth uh, fifth step, I did it with my therapist. Because I felt she's out of the picture. She doesn't talk to anybody. I'm OK with that, you know. And there were still some things I left out. You know, I mean, that's just the way it was. And um, hence, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really recover. You know, I might have been abstinent, but that's a really big difference between abstinence and recovery. Uh, I know that today. It's taken me a long time. However, it tells me here that. Um, I can solve this problem, and if I follow these steps that are outlined in this book, I'm able to do that and I'm able to recover. Um, you know, it tells me here the central fact of our lives today is that absolute, with absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And today, I think of myself as a miracle, and I think of Nancy as a miracle, and I think of Kim as a miracle, and everybody else that sits in this room. And we are miracles. Because we're sick people, we have an illness, but we found a solution. Because we were hopeless, remember? And what does it mean? If there's no hope, we're going to die. We're going to die miserable. But it tells me that there's a, a miraculous way that we can recover. It also tells me that there's no middle of the road solution. And that was something that I tried to find for many, many, many years. I wanted the middle of the road solution. I wanted to do, you know, maybe like the first five, six, seven steps. You know, I was okay with that. 
but you know what? I really didn't care that much about you. And unfortunately, that was my downfall. It truly was my downfall. You know, I would work with people for a little while and then just kind of get tired of it, I guess. You know, it was like, oh, well, there's nobody around. There's nobody different coming to our meetings. I wasn't taking that step to help other people. And that's where I fell down. And that's where I think many of us fall down because once again, we're selfish and self-centered and we think we can do it ourselves. And that was me. So um, I wanna live today. Um, tells me here, one was to go onto the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. So today I accept spiritual help. I know that God for me is the one and only answer to my problems today, and I'm so blessed and so grateful to know that, and that if I reach my hand out, which is my responsibility, it's my responsibility to reach out to other people like me who still suffer. So with that, I'll pass this on back to Nancy. Okay. All right. Thanks, Lou. Uh, our last step one chapter, more about alcoholism. And I just want to say, um, for me, these first four chapters, um, I today truly understand. And I, you know, I, I've been told no matter what step I'm on, I have to really know step one. And it's so clear to me today. I used to bypass, like I said, the first <laughs> doctor's opinion and Bill's story. And I so relate myself. So now we're at more about alcoholism. This is just more facts, more facts of what's, what's going on, you know, and being abstinent without working the steps. So for me, I wanna, I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs. Um, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless veins attempts to prove we could drink like others, other people. The idea that somehow, someday, we will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. We've learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step of recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. And you know, my history tells me exactly this. My history of, you know, my <coughs> compulsive overeating and all my, it tells me that I can't compulsively eat and then stop abruptly. It's just not happening. I, for me, it's not happening. So, you know, on, and I love it how it just goes, like on page 31, here are some methods we have tried. And, you know, like I don't have to go into all of them, but let's, let's, let's do a few, okay? I did every diet imaginable, every diet, uh, diet pills, drugs, you know, I, I, I did it all, laxatives, starving, binging, like 
every which way that I thought that, that I could that I could handle it. You know, like and the thing is, normal eaters don't do this. They just don't do it. Like what the thank you God that I came into these rooms and it's laid out here. It tells me, it tells me, you know, what why I do. So and then the other let's if you're not sure, if you're really not sure, I'm gonna Give you a little test. We do not like to pronounce any individual an alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room, buffet, whatever you're, and try some control drinking eating. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Like I said, my it, it just it just doesn't happen. It just didn't happen for me. So it tells me here. So now we have, it says, we have learned of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for long periods because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here's one of them. Let's just talk about the man of 30. Um, a man of 30 was doing a great deal of speed drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quiet himself with some more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. Okay, all right, that's good, right? Then he fell victim to the belief which practically every alcoholic food act myself has had his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. And you know, the example for me, I already said about it, but I was 30 years old. I know this is crazy, but I was 30 years old because at that time in my life, I had lived with my sister. I wasn't paying my bills. I was so irresponsible. And she told me I couldn't live with her anymore. And I was like, I was appalled. Like, that's how immature I was. I was appalled. Like, what do you mean I can't live here? And at 30 years old, I moved back with my parents. This is why I'm just telling the story, because I'm a man of 30. And I remember I started working for my dad's company, and I started stealing from him. But in the meantime, when the aunt, I saw my aunt, I saw my aunt, and like, she lost weight, and then I asked her, and it was that way. So I asked, I'm like, I'm going to LA. I'm going to go there. And like I said, I lost the weight, and see, it, it, it tells me. I think that I, after a time, I can do it again. And guess what? I can't. So I fell victim again, you know? I met the guy. I, I got pregnant. Um, and then I, all bets off, and food took over again. And then the the insanity of how I lived and the unhappiness. The biggest thing for me was the loneliness that I felt inside. I felt like I lived in a black hole and I was always trying to get out. And whatever, you know, I, w I would have a few days and I would be, oh, and then I would eat and the eat and the dark place that took over. So, um, you know, let, let's get right, you know, it says these case, these, this case contains a powerful lesson, but here's the truth. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Like, that's just it. That's, 
is this strong language? Like all the stuff that it says. Yeah, but it's true. I need this type of language to, to hammer this home, you know, in my head. So, um, you know, it's, I think the biggest thing for me and which I have learned, um, and I, and I wrote this, but, um, I go to the pain that brings me the pain. So it's like the jaywalker, okay? Substitute the word, you know, alcohol, food, you know, for, for the jaywalker. And that was my life, just over and over. I'll die, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. And what I learned is that pain, which, you know, he runs out and gets hit by a trolley car. I go to the food. And I, then I go to the dark place, and I'm alone, and I'm in my bedroom, <clears throat> eating by myself. And I can't get out of it. I can't get out of it. And thinking, same thing, is this all there is to my life? And it's like I can't eat safely, diet happily, all, the, all those things that it says, you know? And so I have to go to page... Where am I at? 42. And I have to, I have to ask myself, am I an alcoholic? Am I a food addict? Am I a compulsive overeater? And am I really licked this time? I had to concede both propositions. And you know, I, I had long-term abstinence and in this program, but I didn't work the steps as late out in this book, like what Lou talked about. We, we, I was that person in that 14 month, uh, whatever, that Step big study. study that we did. And we would go every week, but like we didn't know anybody. We were taught like what we knew, but thank God that we know today how to take somebody through. But we learned a lot from it. We stayed together. It was that fellowship part of it. But now I know that it's, the, you know, the spiritual aspect for me, because in those moments of being alone when I'm, you know, those thoughts come over me, you know, and nobody's around, it's God, you know, so I, I mean, I'm grateful for all of it. So, you know, so, so now what do I do? So I'm at this point and what do I do? And it tells me right here on page 42. Then they outline the spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Um, but the program of action, though enti entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcohol condi condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. And then it, this is it. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. All, not half, all. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back 
even if I, even if I could. And I wrote in the in the margin, no friggin' way, I'm not going back. There's, there's just, you, you know, it's not always great. If I, every, like everybody else, had a lot of things, and but two lives in one lifetime. Who gets that? Who gets that? And it's through, you know, it's through doing this. And, and, and I've, I've shared this. Like, I've been abstinent and not worked the steps. And I have been abstinent and working the steps. And let me tell you, it's a whole different world <laughs> working the steps. And I wrote this. Life becomes full. I have a purpose. This chokes me up. Working with others. Because I'm selfish. <laughs> working with others. And I, because I want to. It's a new freedom, a new happiness. And who doesn't want that? So, but I want to say, let me be clear once more. We'll end with this. The alcoholic at certain times has, has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from higher power and you know it ends with that so it's like pick up the food now pick up the steps make the steps you know like i've heard somebody you know god is ever either is everything or god is nothing either the 12 steps are everything or they are nothing because through that and self-sacrifice like i get the promises in this which are outlined in this book And with that, I'm going to close.